Well, it's that time again for us to dig into the Word of God together, the teaching part of our ministry, and I'm very excited uh, to uh, look at a new chapter with you uh, in the book of Hebrews. I want to say that my task this morning is to take you through the first part of chapter 7, where the writer begins to explain in detail the finer points of Melchizedek and the significance of his priesthood. And I do that with some fear and trembling, in all honesty, because this stuff is for the mature. It's it's for uh, adults, so to speak, in that uh, it is for those who are ready to receive the meat of the word. Remember back in chapter 5 when the writer rebuked or gave a scathing rebuke to the congregation for being dull of understanding, specifically that Jesus was designated by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. He said that in chapter 5, and this would be no easy task then for him to explain it to them because of their study habits, their bad study habits. While at this time they should have been teachers, they still needed somebody to teach them the elementary things of God, he says in chapter 5. He nevertheless addresses this deep subject, though, of Melchizedek, and his significance to Messiah in chapter 7. And it is a long and detailed word that he does bring, as he promised in chapter 5, that he would. He said, concerning him, we have much to say. And so he gives it uh, an honest effort. Now, don't worry, we're not going to say all of it this morning. We're limiting ourselves to just the first 10 verses of chapter 7, but please turn in your Bibles to chapter 7 if you're not there already. As small as this chunk is that we take this morning, it is still rather deep, and I just want to warn you about that up front. There's a lot of mining we're going to be doing in the next couple of weeks as we make our way through chapter 7. You really need to concentrate, so put your thinking caps on. Um, the, uh, and, and more than this, I, I, want to, to keep, I want you to keep in mind something very important as we study chapter 7 and as we study, of course, this morning. As detailed as this gets, remember the point of it all, which I've expressed um, as the first truth in my outline published for you in the bulletin, is this. We need to point drifters to Jesus and to depend on his high priestly ministry. That's the point of all of this. This was the point of the writer. It's the point of of all of us, as I hope to, to show you and prove to you in due course. The writer makes a great effort to combat drifting in his congregation, as you know. And the way that he does it here, with this extended word on Melchizedek and Jesus' priesthood, is essentially to point these drifters to Jesus and to depend on Jesus' high priestly ministry. This is really the overall purpose of the letter. In fact, it begins the book, you might remember, uh, as, uh, as early into it as the, the beginning of chapter 3. He says, therefore, holy brothers and sisters, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus. It's chapter 3, verse 1. And he says it again toward the end of this letter in chapter 12. Verse 1, for consider him who has endured such hostility by the sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Consider Jesus, he says, so you won't grow weary. That's the idea. It's no surprise that in a context of spurring spiritual lethargic Christians to, uh, uh, to run a better race, he calls them in this very letter to look only at Jesus, the originator and perfecter of our faith. That's all in chapter 12. And they're to look at him as a model of their endurance, a model of their faithfulness. And we, beloved, should do the same as this writer when, whenever we can with those that we influence for Christ. Whether it's our kids, our grandkids, people in the church, people we disciple, no matter who it is that's in our sphere of influence. And please, don't get the impression that that this urging by the writer to consider Jesus or to look only to him as something shallow or superficial or, or even something that each believer has the right to define in his own mind. 
when the writer invites them to consider Jesus, it is in the context of these deeper truths of Jesus' person and work. It's beyond the elementary stuff now. We get into the nitty-gritty of doctrine. We'll see, for example, how how, uh, the the writer does this shortly in chapter 7. In other words, part of what it means to minister to we Christians or those who might be drifting away from the foundational tenets of the faith to some kind of error, is to explain to them the finer points of the doctrine that relates to their particular situation. What I'm suggesting is not that we sit a wayward Christian down and give him a, a, a course in systematic theology. Not quite. No, I'm suggesting that we streamline our doctrine our doctrinal content, to fit his particular area of weakness or struggle or particular point of his drifting and to show Christ's ministry to be superior to any form of teaching or spiritual practice that competes with it. No matter how much of the Bible it, it, it might have as part of its belief system, this particular error. Doctrine is necessary. And we must minister the word to those that God puts in our circle of influence. Now let me warn you, that is not a popular practice today. When it comes to sound doctrine, more and more people in churches are, not, are putting up rather with less and less of it, as Paul himself once prophesied would happen. Doctrine's not where it's at. It's all about how I feel and how the beliefs that I happen to hold how they will work for me. So in a context where doctrine is a dirty word, where church leaders spend more time entertaining and appeasing than teaching, where Christians have privatized their faith, faith is a public matter, not a private one, so says the book of Revelation, and where apostasy and compromise abound, we follow the lead of the writer of the Hebrews, and we teach the doctrine of Christ to wandering souls with the hope that we might center their faith and the zeal in Christ alone. Let's see how the writer does just this in chapter 7. You remember, just for context, you remember chapter 6 ends with verse 20. Speaking of Christ, the writer says, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, That's how he ends chapter 6. That's a direct quote from Psalm 110.4. We heard it read this morning in our scripture reading. And the writer is now going to elaborate on its significance for Christians. Basically, the idea is that Melchizedek is a type of Christ. Now you say a type. Well, what's a type? Well, in theology, a type is a literary device that foreshadows a future reality to a certain degree. That reality, the fulfillment of the type, is called the anti-type. So you have the type and the anti-type. The anti-type is the fulfillment of what was foreshadowed by the type. Got it? Well, we have plenty of types in the Old Testament that find their reality in the New Testament. For example, Moses is a type of Christ uh, in that he was God's deliverer when God redeemed Israel from the bondage of Egypt, the bronze serpent that Moses made and put on a pole and held up for all those in Israel who got bitten by serpents and were dying to look at in order to save their lives. That was a type of Christ. As the bronze serpent was lifted up on the pole for all to see that they may be healed, Jesus was lifted up on the cross so that he might save many who look to him for salvation. Well, Melchizedek is a type of Christ as well, in that his position as king-priest foreshadowed Jesus' royal priesthood. That's the connection. Now, that being the case, as we go through chapter 7, one through t- verses 1 to 10, I'm going to speak more of Jesus than I am of Melchizedek, because speaking of Melchizedek is the same as speaking of Jesus, since one is the type of the other. Also, this is certainly the intent of the writer. He appeals to Melchizedek's ministry to argue for the superiority of Jesus' priesthood over the Aaronic priesthood. 
By the way, this was one of the sticking points with this group. They were placing their trust in the Levitical priesthood, which caused them to drift away from the orthodox truth of Christ's superior priesthood and all that comes with that. So he confronts their view. He streamlines this doctrine, the doctrine of Christ's royal priesthood, and he confronts them directly by explaining the doctrine of Christ's priesthood. Essentially, he again, he points drifters to Jesus to depend on, on his high priestly ministry because his royal one his royal one establishes righteousness and peace, and it is eternal, and it is universal in scope, and it is preeminent. These are all points that we'll consider as we go through. Let me hasten then to the second one. Jesus' priesthood is royal, and it's characterized by righteousness and peace. It's royal, and it's characterized by righteousness and peace. Look at verses 1 and 2. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth of all, all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, King of Righteousness, and then also King of Salem, which is King of Peace. All right, that's verses 1 and 2. If we're going to appreciate the full impact of what is going on here, what the writer is saying, we we have to acquaint ourselves with the historical background that the writer himself draws from Genesis 14. The, those who received this letter knew this background. The Old Testament, you know, is the background for the New Testament, especially for the book of Hebrews. So Abraham was a real historical figure, right? Real historical figure, and at this point in his life, he was a very powerful man. On this particular occasion... He was defending the territory that God promised to give him, the land, and at the same time rescuing his nephew Lot from some very powerful kings. These wicked kings had occupied some of Abraham's land and essentially took Lot captive. As it turns out, God blesses Abraham with a victory. He gets Lot, he clears the land, he reclaims his land, and Abraham's allies, some neighboring kings that went with him to assist him in this battle, they're also blessed because they helped Abraham. Looks like God's covenant promise to Abraham to bless those who bless Abraham is starting to come true. It was on his way home from this victorious battle that Abraham encounters this curious man, Melchizedek, who refreshes Abraham with with wine and some bread, and then blesses him. Now keep in mind, this is a historical interaction. It's really happened. Melchizedek was a real person, as real as, Ad as Abraham was. And according to verse 2, Abraham even apportioned a tenth of his spoils to this man. He gave an offering to a real person. More on Abraham's offering in a moment. Now, the writer of Hebrews now gives us Melchizedek's resume. That is, who he was and what he did. And, and he draws that information from Genesis 14, just in case you're wondering where this is all mentioned. It's really the only place it's mentioned. Melchizedek was a king. Verse 1 specifies that he was the king of Salem. And in verse 2, uh, he, he is kind enough to provide us with the translation of his name, king of righteousness. Uh, his name is made up really of two Hebrew words. You have melech, which is the Hebrew word for king, and you have tzaddik, which is the Hebrew word for righteousness. Put them together, you have king of righteousness. Most likely, this was not a personal name, but it was a title. So it was really meant to express the fact that he was a righteous king or that he had a righteous rule. Um, in other words, the king had a reputation of having a righteous rule. Where, where did Melchizedek rule? Salem, according to Genesis 14, verse 18, which is most likely the old name for the city of Jerusalem. Now, more than this, the writer is quick to say that the king of Salem means that he was the king of peace, because Salem means 
peace. You know, you know it as the Hebrew word shalom. The writer tells us that the king of Salem, Melchizedek, was the king of peace. And once again, uh, the writer refers to the king's reputation. His righteous rule was also a peaceful one. Okay, so far so good. Righteous and peace characterize Melchizedek's rule. I think we can be sure that the writer makes a point of mentioning these two characteristics because he wants to emphasize the significance of Melchizedek's rule. Now, just as important as his rule was, was his priesthood. His priesthood. He was not only a king, he was a priest of God Most High, it says, that Abraham also worshipped the same God. Huh. The Lord had a relationship with someone in addition to Abraham, outside of Abraham's circle. Yes, and a meaningful one at that, for he called Melchizedek to rule Salem as his priest. And this is why he could represent God in blessing Abraham. Now, before we go any further, you need to know why Melchizedek's royal priesthood is such an impressive part of his resume. Why is that? Well, it wasn't uncommon in the ancient world for kings to also be priests. Egypt had them, Persia had them, Canaanites had them, just to name a few. But God did not allow it in Israel. No. If you were a king of Israel, you were not a priest. And if you were a priest of Israel, you were not a king. The law is very specific that priests come from the tribe of Levi, and kings usually came from the tribe of Judah. They seldom came from any other tribes, but if they did, never from Levi. This is why we never see a king-priest in Israel. Now remember how God divested Saul of his kingship because Saul overstepped his bounds, and he made a sacrifice to God that he wasn't qualified to make. Remember that? God was no longer with Saul anymore. Wrenched the kingdom right out from under him. So what Abraham, when it, what Abraham meets, a king priest, was common at that time. But Abraham, being the father of the Hebrew nation, soon to come, accepts him and receives a blessing from him, and that is quite remarkable. We'll see this shortly. It's equally remarkable that King David himself, knowing the law, which existed already at his time, regarding kings and priests in Israel, believed that Messiah would occupy both roles at once. David saw a royal priesthood as the superior role and the only fit one for Messiah. Now, how do we know that? And how do we know that this is what he's thinking? Because the only other place in the Old Testament that actually mentions this in Melchizedek is Psalm 110. Again, the psalm we heard read uh, at the opening of our, our, our service this morning. It captures his thoughts on this topic that ultimately are confirmed by God in the writing of this psalm. Holy Spirit really is the one who, who sanctions the writing, and it is part of Scripture. So it's God's mind. In this psalm, David prophesies that Messiah would be both king and priest, an unheard of thing in Israel. Not surprisingly, he cites Melchizedek as the prototype of Messiah's role in the future. He says, there, he says there of Messiah, the Lord has sworn and, and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. David obviously had access to Genesis 14, and he thought a lot about it, and he thought through it. This was his conclusion. So it's easy to see why David, and now the writer of Hebrews, uses Melchizedek as a type of Christ. Both were king priests. Both rules were were to be characterized by righteousness and peace, and who would execute uh, a, a royal priesthood. And there are practical benefits to Jesus' royal priesthood for us, which we probably ought to mention before we go any further. And they're significant. As king, 
all right, as king, Jesus rules in our lives on this earth and specifically our relationships with other people. This is what we might call horizontal level or horizontal um, aspect. He, he rules on this level. He has left his word for us to abide in and, th- and, and through it he rules us. He's really our true political ruler because we belong to his kingdom and we live by kingdom principles. So this is how he rules our lives. He's our Lord. He's our king. As priest, he ministers to us on a vertical level. That is, in our relationship with God. He established our relationship with God Almighty, which only a king priest could do. That is, he secured our spiritual relationship with God. The the righteousness that so characterizes his rule, he imputed to us that we might be acceptable in God's sight. And as the peace that characterizes his rule, he's established between God and us when he reconciled us to God, which is to know ultimate peace. More than this, Jesus, our king priest, has made us, in the words of 1 Peter 2.9, a royal priesthood. There's more to Jesus' royal priesthood that the writer wants his audience to know. For example, that Jesus' royal priesthood is eternal. That's the third, third part. It is eternal. We read on in verse 3. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God He remains a priest perpetually. What an odd thing to say. What's going on here? Was this man even human as he had no genealogy? Let's say it again. Melchizedek is a real person. He's a real king priest who ruled a real city. So he was not a theophany or, or an angel as some have assumed. How then do we explain this strange description? He had no beginning, no end. A human being cannot have a perpetual priesthood. He either steps down from his duties because of his old age, or he dies at some point. Well, the answer is simple. Moses does not mean that this man had no genealogy. He just didn't give it. If Moses even had the background information on Melchizedek, then he purposely left it out, and for good reason. See, Genesis is the book of beginnings. It is the book of genealogies. And it would be very strange indeed to include it uh, or to, to include in it such a significant figure as Melchizedek and not provide his genealogy unless there was good reason not to. And there was. By leaving it out, Moses bolsters this idea of a perpetual and eternal priesthood, and that better suits Melchizedek as a type of Christ. We know this was Moses' intention for sure, because the writer of Hebrews says that Melchizedek was, quote, made like the Son of God. Do you see that? Made like the Son of God. We would understand the Greek verb, to be made like, that's actually a verb in Greek. We'd understand it better if we translated it this way. He was made similar to the Son of God, or maybe even better, he portrayed the Son of Man. And this takes us back to our meaning of type. Melchizedek portrayed the real Son of God who has no beginning and no end. Now, let me just say that the practical benefit, again, to us being on the receiving end of a royal priesthood is, uh, that is eternal is also very significant. All the benefits that we just mentioned that are ours a moment ago from knowing Jesus as our priest king, they are always there for us on this side of heaven, always unending supply of blessing and benefit that comes from our eternal royal priest. Jesus fulfills our needs that fall under his priestly ministry for as long as his ministry endures, and that's eternal. We enjoy Jesus' round-the-clock ministry to us. He never fails to give us what we need, so there are no excuses to live boldly, beloved. 
What more does the writer say? Well, Jesus' royal priesthood is not only characterized by righteousness and peace and is eternal, but also Jesus' royal priesthood is universal in scope. It's universal in scope. That's number four. Really, the superiority of Jesus' priesthood rests on the fact that he himself is superior to all men because he is the Son of God, just as Melchizedek was like the Son of God, foreshadowed in his encounter with Abraham. Everything in this brief historical account reveals that Abraham knew Melchizedek to be his superior. In what way was he superior? Well, in that Melchizedek was qualified to be a priest and Abraham wasn't. So it is in the realm of function that we can say that this royal priest was greater than Abraham. We see there clear that there are clear indications that Abraham recognized this. For example, one indication is that Abraham gave him a tenth of his spoils from war. We return to what the, the writer's reference in, to this in verse 2, Abraham playing, uh, paying a tenth of all his spoils, that, that he now explains more fully in verse 4. He says there, verse 4, Now observe how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of his choicest spoils. The writer himself makes the inference from Genesis that Abraham paid Melchizedek tithes because he recognized Melchizedek's high position as royal priest. That's one indication. Here's another. Abraham receives Melchizedek's blessing. You might not know the context of Genesis 14, but there were two kings that came out to meet Abraham that day. Uh, and one was a secular king who also tried to give Abraham a blessing, and Abraham rejected it. But he receives Melchizedek's blessing, which means that he acknowledges Melchizedek's divine calling as royal priest that qualified him not only to bless those on God's behalf, but to receive tithes as well. We see in verse 7, but without any dispute, the lesser person is blessed then by the greater. Let me explain the connection more specifically. The one who is qualified to bless others on God's behalf is functionally greater than those he blesses, not because he was a superior human being, you understand, no, but because he held a higher position. His function was higher than that of Abraham's, and Abraham accepted this. So Abraham acknowledged God's blessing by the mouth of this royal priest, and then he gave a portion of his tithes in gratitude to God, to God's servant Melchizedek. We might say then, in the same way, God appointed Jesus to function in a greater way than any of the Levitical priests ever could, in a royal priesthood. Therefore, his priesthood is greater. Now, this must have spoken volumes to the first century Jews who received this letter. Volumes. It affected them a little bit differently than, it, than it's probably affecting you right now. See, they knew that Abraham was always a revered figure in Judaism, being the father of it. Yet he paid tithes to this king priest, who, who is presented as Abraham's superior. And Abraham accepted this. Otherwise, he wouldn't have received his blessing and paid him his tithe. But there's more. A third indication is that Jesus' priesthood is not inherited from the, the, uh, the Levites or anyone else for that matter. This is what made Melchizedek's priesthood greater because his wasn't inherited by anybody. His was his own. And so was Christ's. It, 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 it's quite his own. Jesus' royal priesthood is not, is not inherited. Therefore, it is not restricted nationally to the, to the Israelite nation. Look at verse 5 and verse 6. To those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have a commandment in the law to, co to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their countrymen, although they are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one 
who had the promise. What the writer stresses here is the fact that Melchizedek is, is not from the tribe of Levi or in, in any way associated with the Levitical priesthood. He couldn't have been for the simple fact that it hadn't existed yet. It wouldn't come for another several hundred years. The point is that Melchizedek is not of that order. He is from his own order. God chose a man from outside of Abraham's race to be his priest to bless Abraham. His royal priesthood, then, was more universal in scope, not exclusively tied to Israel as the Levitical priesthood was. And if it was meant to be a type of Jesus' royal priesthood, then Jesus' priestly ministry is also universal in scope. From a, from a practical standpoint, Jesus is God's priest to the world, not just Israel. And that is to say, his royal priesthood was unrestricted. He is high priest to those who are born again from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. To any Jew considering Christianity in the first century, and those Jews who were among this particular congregation that was receiving this letter, this would have been an eye-opener. Until Jesus came, the Levitical priesthood was the only one that Israel knew to be legitimate. But the writer shows them that this is not true any longer. Abraham, their father, paid tithes to another priesthood, one that existed long before Israel was ever instituted as a nation. It was therefore not restricted to Israelites or to Abraham, but open to everyone, even back then. And Jesus' priestly ministry, of which Melchizedek's priesthood was a type, is therefore universal. God will bless others outside of the nation of Israel through Christ, just as he has promised Abraham he would do in his covenant with him. We see more of God's covenant being fulfilled along the way. We could be, quite, we could be quick, rather, to admit that Jesus' royal priesthood is the only one that God now recognizes, the only one. If one is going to be reconciled to God, it must be through Jesus' sacrificial work. If one's going to enjoy a personal relationship with God, it must be through Jesus' mediating work. And if one's going to grow in one's relationship with God, it must be through Jesus' intercessory work. These divine functions of Jesus all fall under his priestly office and they extend to all who will come. What else has the writer to say about Jesus' royal priesthood? Just one last word. Jesus' royal priesthood is preeminent. It's the best. It's the best there is. It's superlative. Aaron was, of course, God's first priest Israel and he would establish the Levitical order. The writer contrasts Aaron's priesthood with Jesus' priesthood in such a way that it shows Jesus to be superior to Aaron. Look at verse 8. In this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in, the case, but in this case one receives them of whom it was witnessed that he lives on. What does that mean? The writer wants us to understand that mere mortal men operated the Levitical priesthood. He means by this, men who would eventually die. They were mortal. When the Old Testament priest was no longer in service, he had to be replaced with another priest in order to keep the priesthood running. You can't have a priesthood without priests. By contrast, Jesus is not just immortal. He's eternal. So his priesthood endures forever. As the writer declared a bit declares a bit further in his chapter, he always lives to make intercession for them. Always. He's not dead, he's alive. Now, this truth is one of many truths that shows why Jesus' priesthood is superior to Aaron's priesthood, the Levitical priesthood. It was prefigured in Melchizedek before Israel's priesthood. It replaced Israel's priesthood when Jesus died and rose from the dead. And it now stands as God's only legitimate priesthood that will live on. 
But the writer is not finished yet. He still has more to say about this. He makes this observation for us in, in, verse, uh, in verses 9 and 10, and it's really meant to end the discussion. Here's where we really need to think. Um, the verse says, And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who receives tithes, has paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his forefather when Melchizedek met him. Hmm. What does that mean? What is he saying? It seems as though he is saying that Levi, a descendant of Abraham, literally paid tithes to Melchizedek when Abraham did because he was seminally in the loins of Abraham at the time. Is that what you were thinking? You're right. That is a view, by the way. It is a view. And many argue for it. It fits under a bigger concept that theologians call, are you ready? Seminal headship. Seminal headship. Now, um, let me just be so bold as to say I do not believe in seminal headship. I don't believe it's biblical, nor do I believe that the writer is suggesting that Levi is credited with Abraham's actions just because he was still in his loins. Because that's problematic. That view taken to its logical extreme would mean that every one of us is guilty for every evil action of our ancestors before we were even born. Scripture flatly denies that view. Ezekiel 18.20 is a good one. I'll just leave you with this. It says this, The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. So how do we understand the writer at this point then? Well, he draws our attention to the fact that Abraham gave tithes to this priest as a representative for the entire Hebrew race, including Levi. That teaches something quite different. Let me put it to you this way. I don't believe that Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek in Abraham. The writer to the Hebrews is speaking symbolically in order to drive home to us the fact that Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek because Melchizedek held a greater position than Abraham. And if Abraham is greater than his descendant Levi, whose tribe would eventually produce the Levitical priesthood, and Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, Levi's representative, then Melchizedek is greater than Levi. That also means that Melchizedek's priesthood would naturally be greater than the Levitical priesthood that came from the tribe of Levi. Now that's a mouthful, but hopefully you see the progression. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Abraham is greater than Levi. Melchizedek is greater than Levi. That's the idea. Now you might be thinking, wow, the, the writer sure has a strange way of putting that. Well, he puts it this way because of something called and I'll throw something else at, at you. This is, again, uh, the, the, the deeper stuff of theology. It's called family solidarity. Family solidarity, which you don't really hear much of. Let me explain it to you with the hope that it might help you to have a better understanding of the way he puts this. Many years ago, biblical scholars, in an effort to describe mysterious passages like this, identified a concept in the Old Testament that they believed was real and operational in the mindset of ancient Hebrews. They called it uh, family solidarity. It was known by another title, corporate personality, years before that. It refers to a strong familial connection that Hebrews had with their ancestors and with their descendants, depending on which direction you're looking. That's why Jesus could be considered David's son, or why a group of people could be addressed in words befitting an individual, why God at times saw Israelites not as individuals, but as one person. There are also clear indications that Israel shared this perspective uh, of herself as well. For example, family solidarity is evident in, in the Hebrew practice of the Leverite marriage. Maybe you, you don't remember the Leverite marriage. That's a rite that obligates a, the brother of a deceased man 
to marry his widow in the case she has no children so that when he has a child with her, the firstborn male would be named after the deceased person in order to keep his name going and keep his name, or or that his name wouldn't be wiped out from Israel. In this context, the brother who replaces the deceased acts in his stead as if he were he, building a family in the, the name of the deceased. Sometimes the Lord addresses an Israelite tribe in terms of a person. You know that, right? He called Judah a woman who, he, who had committed adultery against him, her husband. Israel is collectively called God's son. A group of people are identified with its ancestors in Genesis 25:23. Listen to this. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will be separated from your body. And the one people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Two nations? Yeah. Two nations that eventually come from uh, uh, Jacob and Esau. When the high priest put his hand on the scapegoat, he was representing every person in Israel. Achan's sin brought God's judgment upon the whole nation. Right? Family solidarity. Descendants experience blessings or cursings inherited from previous generations. Hopefully you get the idea uh, behind family solidarity. The Hebrews saw the strong familial connection to their ancestors and to their descendants, again, depending on which way you're looking. And as you can see, it's more than just blood ties. Solidarity is alive and well in the New Testament as well. The church is made up of many members, but God still has only one bride. And while there's no denying that God is concerned for individual believers, he certainly was concerned for individual believers in the Old Testament. There are instances where his relationship with the church is emphasized, and the way he relates to the church can be explained only in the sense of family solidarity. For example, he gave the church apostles. We um, can, can read about that and confirm that. Now, why are there no more apostles? Well, because they were the foundation of the church. So you don't build a foundation by adding a, a, other foundations on top of it. Now, you and I were not there to see the 12 apostles because we're in a place in the growth of the church that doesn't need them any longer. They were the foundation. Now, don't misunderstand. We still benefit from their apostolic teaching, right? How about sign gifts, as some of us call them? They're another example. They were important for the church in her infancy when the message of the gospel was spreading to both Jew and Gentile and needed a powerful confirmation that it was genuine. But as the church grew and became more effective and influential in the world, it didn't need signs and wonders to prove her legitimacy any longer, which is why a good section of Christianity does not believe that they are operational today. The promises that God made to Abraham and those he made to the apostles, aren't they ours as well? Yes, they are. We understand all of this only if we see the idea of family solidarity. All right, perhaps the classic passage is Romans chapter 5. Paul talks there of two representatives of the human race. Do you remember? He calls them the first Adam and the second Adam. No well-grounded, solid theologian, and certainly no one here this morning, would ever deny that Adam was our representative, and as such, we reap the consequences of his initial sin. Paul puts it this way in Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all mankind, because all sinned. Hmm. Now, family solidarity helps us to understand this verse. Ties between Adam and his progeny, that is, you and I, are so tight that Paul could say that we sinned in Adam. He says essentially the same thing in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 15, 22. When Adam died, we all died in him. 
But how could we have sinned in Adam? Well, it's not that we were somehow present there in Adam's loins and therefore committed the sin when he did. That is the seminal headship that we talked about before. We've already shown that that is really unbiblical. Rather, Adam is the representative of the human race. Reformed theologians call him the federal head. It simply refers to one acting as the representative of the whole, which, by the way, is something that all unbelievers are well familiar with in all aspects of life, business, military, politics. When Adam, as the representative of the human race, sinned, the consequences of his sin, death and guilt, were passed on to us. You might not understand that or think it's fair, but our solidarity with Adam as our representative makes it true. His sin and his guilt were put to our account. Imputed is the theological term. So that everyone is born at odds with God and needs to be born again. And by the same token, Christ, the second Adam, died on behalf of those who are born again. He was our representative, and as such, he could take our place on the cross and die in our stead. His perfect life and his acceptable death and resurrection were all credited or imputed to our account at the moment of our conversion. His righteousness is ours. His holiness is ours. So Paul says in verse 17, For by the offense of one, death reigned through the one. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Can you see this idea of solidarity coming through the text? It's very much a part of the Apostle Paul's thinking. Without it, his description of the essence of our conversion in terms of an identification with Christ in his epistles, makes little sense. Such as Romans 6.5, we've been buried with him through baptism into death. Colossians 3.1, you have been raised with Christ. Of course, we're not literally buried with Christ. We're not literally raised with Christ. From a spiritual perspective, our old selves died Yes, in conversion. They, in a sense, died with Christ and were buried with him. And what came out of the ground, what was resurrected, was a new self that we experience in Christ now. On a practical note, all believers have their, at their disposal the best economy that God established and can offer anyone. Messiah's royal priesthood. It is it is characterized by righteousness and peace. It rules the hearts of his followers on a horizontal dimension and ministers to them on a vertical dimension. In other words, it benefits the entire individual, us, in our relationship with God and neighbor. It is also eternal, which means it always will be there to do the job in us. And it is universal which means it will impact people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And therefore, it is the greatest ministry that, that, can ever, that we can ever be under. Now, I want to bring this study to a close by stressing not only how important it is that we point drifters to the doctrine of Christ and specifically to his royal priesthood, since that doctrine impacts so much of our Christian lives on a practical level. But also, I want to point out how tenacious and patient the writer is in stressing this. He makes such a great case, and he appeals to their intellect to think through what he is saying. At the very least, they were forced to see that Abraham, the father of the Hebrew nation, whose descendants would go on to establish the Levitical priesthood, accepts Melchizedek as his functioning superior. And they would no doubt have made this connection. If Melchizedek was greater than Abraham, then he was greater than all Abraham's human descendants. And if Melchizedek is greater than those who were priests in Israel, then his royal priesthood was greater than the Levitical one. 
once they made this connection, they would be faced with a choice. Would they, would they now follow Abraham, the revered patriarch of their faith, and accept the superiority of Messiah's royal priesthood? Oh, I'm sure the writer hoped so. Would they follow their beloved ancestor, great King David, who also accepted Messiah's royal priesthood over the Levitical priesthood? I wonder if you realize just how powerful David's prophecy was in Psalm 110. Jewish Christians receiving this letter certainly did. David made a prophecy, and it was this. When the Old Testament covenant, the Old Testament covenant, Uh, prohibited a king from also having the role of priest and when the Levitical priesthood accepted qualified men only from the tribe of Levi then Messiah could never have been a priest under the old covenant because he was not from the tribe of Levi but from the tribe of Judah His prophecy then anticipated a time when Messiah would be both king and priest and sit in Melchizedek's throne in Jerusalem because the old covenant would be replaced with a new one and the Levitical priesthood would be obsolete. David knew this. This is his prophecy. And that happened When Jesus died and rose from the dead, the veil was rent in two. The new covenant had been inaugurated. Jesus' high priestly ministry was replaced. I had replaced the Aaronic priesthood. The time David anticipated had come. And the Jewish Christians of the first century were living in it. You know, the Old Testament sacrificial system, it was the heart of Judaism. Because it was all about how one might live before God and love God and love neighbor as he ought. If Jesus' royal priesthood replaced that, then his is at the very heart of our faith. It enables us to love God and love neighbor as we ought. And we ought then to champion it as our central doctrine. Our own Mike McManus said that he is seeing 2021 as a time where we need to point those uh, to God, those who are given to us under our sphere of influence. We need to point them to God. And I would say that this is the message of Hebrews 7. Consider Jesus. Look to him. Let us do a good job of pointing people to Messiah and to his priestly and or to his royal priesthood rather and let's be about that for the glory of God and the benefit of his church